0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome again as we come to study our shorter catechism this morning. I'm going to open us up in prayer and then we'll dive right into our time. All right. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to praise you for the new day that you've granted to us in your kindness. We thank you that you neither slumber nor sleep, that you watched over us and kept us while we rested in our weakness And You awakened us, O Lord, and we pray that You would satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love. Pray that You would stir our hearts as we come to study more of who You are and how You would direct us to live, to know You. We pray for the blessing of the Lord upon the whole day, that You would sanctify it to us and encourage our souls. Thank You for the fellowship of the saints here and minister to us this morning by the power of Your Holy Spirit. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as we get going uh, studying the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this is probably the last time we can do this. We can actually make you review, because by the time you start, you know, accumulating the questions, we don't want all of our class time to be just saying it. Uh, we want to actually teach the content. But I am going to do that this morning. I'm going to give you a little review. So if you'll indulge me, <clears throat> uh, what is the chief end of man? Let's say this together. Man's chief end. Is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You can cover your eyes, and see if you can do it. <clears throat> All right. Just a quick reminder: this is telling us that we exist for the Lord. We were created for him. Uh, we must therefore live unto the Lord. Our whole life is to be oriented to God. That is why we were created. And we discussed this. We we praise the Lord to glorify him declaratively, ascribing greatness to his name, persistently. For to me, to live is Christ. My whole life is focused on Him. Uh, We are publicly praising the Lord. We've we've been saved uh, to proclaim His excellencies. There's a private praising, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all unto the glory of God. And then this holistic praise or glorifying God that is every part of our being uh, because we've been called to love the Lord our God with all of us and the very composite parts are mentioned. And then we saw in enjoying God that bliss is found in obedience. It's not what the devil tells you, but he's a liar, right? Bliss is found in obedience. So we enjoy the Lord by rejoicing in Him, by giving thanks for His gifts, clinging to His Word, and delighting in His love to us. And we want to pray that the Lord would help us to keep these kinds of things in perspective. So we move from question one now to question two. Park taught us last week, What rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? Before you say it, this is one of the hardest ones to remember because the answer doesn't include the question. Usually, the, the question is actually in the answer. So you've got half of it already, but that's not the case here. But let's say it together. The Word of God which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. Now, as we think about this, where is the only rule to direct us? It's not in my reason, my intellect. It's not in my experience so that I follow my own heart. It's in the God-breathed Word. God's Word is the rule to direct us. We talked about this concept. This is a You know, theological terms, plenary verbal inspiration, plenary meaning full or fullness. Uh, The Bible as it's given to us in its verbal content but recorded is fully inspired, not partially inspired. Well, we don't see that the parts we like are inspired, but the rest of it isn't. It's fully inspired down to the level of every word. I could argue if I had time. Down to the level... Level of whether or not something is singular or plural. Paul actually makes an argument about that in Galatians chapter 3. You can go look it up later. Um, But we looked at the attributes of Scripture last week. God's Word is authoritative, uh, infallible, and inerrant. It's faithful in all it records, and it doesn't make mistakes. That's the idea. There's no deception in the Word. It's necessary, general revelation, creation, for instance, is enough to show you there's a God and that you have violated God's standard, but not enough to save you. Special revelation, the Scripture is necessary to tell you the way of salvation. It's perspicuous, um, and I think Parks made a little joke about this, that uh, it's it's the most unclear word about clarity, (laughs) right? Uh, Perspicuous or, or clear is how we would put it, but the idea is not that God's Word is equally clear about all matters. Some matters Peter says about Paul. Paul writes some things that are very difficult to understand. But it's clear with respect to the message of salvation. You can be an unlearned person and you can get it, the message of salvation. And God's Word is clear enough for all of us. And then it's sufficient. Everything we need for life and godliness is in the Word. And there's an acronym to remember the attributes of Scripture, Uh, one of the ways you can do it is is SNAP, um, where we have sufficiency, necessity, authority, perspicuity, so if you're you're into mnemonic devices to try to keep it all together, uh, that one works and help you remember the attributes of Scripture. Okay, for today, here's what we're covering, we're going to say this, what do the Scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. I'm going to have you say it just one more time. What do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. All right. As we look at the way the catechism is put together, I want to make a comment about the structure of the catechism. And this would be the organization of the parts in view of the character of the whole. The catechetical structure. What is it? There is one. It's well thought out. Now, some of these terms might be new to some of you, but I'm going to introduce them anyway. When we come to the Westminster Shorted Catechism, here's the flow of thought for what we're studying in this time together over these next number of weeks we address what's called biblical ontology. Ontology is the study of being. Who am I? Why am I here? Foundational question, right? Well, you're here, you exist, to glorify God. That's how we begin. Then we move immediately to something called prolegomena, or first things. It's a fancy way to say first things using uh, Greek language, first sayings, uh, literally from the Greek. And we start with the doctrine of Scripture. That's where we are in our study at the moment. Question two and question three are looking at the doctrine of Scripture. Then we move into theology proper, the doctrine of God. All the study of God is theology, but theology proper is talking about who is God in His being and how are we to understand the persons of the Godhead. So we're looking at the Trinity, the attributes of God, and we do that in questions four through six. Then we move into the decrees of God. This is how God has purposed his world to function in his great plan. And God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, we're going to see. All right? And then God unfolds his decrees in the works of creation and providence. So we'll get into the works of God in questions 9 to 20, which will address biblical anthropology. Who are we as God made us to be? what happened when we fell, and what are the consequences of the fall upon man. You can't just study man in the abstract. You have to study man before the fall and after the fall to understand how man functions, and then to get it right in view of glorification. And we're going to talk about covenant theology a little bit, how God condescended with, in a relationship with man to enter into covenant, first with a covenant of works, and then a covenant of grace. That's where we're going. Now, some of y'all might say, okay, great, can we move on? But I just want, you to sh- I want to show you how thoughtful the divines are in the organization of what they're teaching. This is still the way that systematic theology is taught. We start with first things, we move to theology proper, then we move to God in relationship to man, and so forth, eventually getting to Christology but that will be the next time we are able to take up this whole study. Okay, so we come back to our question. What do the Scriptures principally teach? And I want to start by unpacking the notion of principally. What do the Scriptures principally teach? Which the question itself, or the answer itself, is recognizing not everything the Bible teaches is principle, like a first thing. And that's important to get at the start. So the idea here is primarily, What's the Bible teaching? Or what's the main design of the Scriptures? Well, it's not, a, it's not a bunch of stuff, and I'm going to mention some of these. The Bible is not a geography book. Does it have geography in it? Yes. Can I learn the relationship of Israel to Edom and Moab as I read the Bible? Yes. But that's not what the Bible is about. It tells me some things about geography. The Bible is not about cosmology. When man is looking up and he sees that from man's perspective on the earth, that the sun is moving across the sky. This is not a scientific statement about whether or not the sun is revolving around the earth. It's simply man's perspective as he looks up. So this is not a cosmology textbook. That's really important. The church has gotten into messes about this taking a a psalm text, the earth is firmly established and it shall not be moved, and insisting that Copernicus and Galileo were just a bunch of idiots and heretics because they they saw that the earth was actually spinning and the the earth was moving around the sun. They misinterpreted poetic texts. The Bible is not a, a book of cosmology. That's important to recognize. The Bible is not a science textbook. It makes scientific comment but it's not a science book. Um, some people will take a text like in Leviticus 17 that the life is in the blood. See, the blood is everything to us. There's a DNA structure in the blood. Well, that's not the Bible's not talking about that. That's true, but that's not the point of that passage. So that's not what it's principally about. The Bible's not a cultural book, whether it be studying... Cultural anthropology, it's a very sophisticated class you can take in college these days, cultural anthropology, where you can talk about the culinary arts. What are people eating? Um, Wouldn't you love to be someone studying food throughout the history of culture? Some of you are like, yeah, that sounds fun. Others you're like, please, no, that sounds horrible. Uh, Well, the Bible gives you information about that kind of stuff. But that's not what the Bible's about. Um, it's not about husbandry, whether we're talking about raising oxen or sheep or growing grapes for wine. That's not the intent. There's information, but not the intent. It's not about customs. The Babylonians aim to dominate Israel, or the Judites, when they took them, deporting them and training them in Babylonian customs. So Daniel... And his friends, they all get new names and they're trained in the customs of Babylon. That's just telling us what's happening. The Bible's not about customs. It's not about history. It has a lot of historical detail. We can look at the rise and fall of civilizations in Mesopotamia. Or uh, don't get caught in an Asian land war. If we uh, quote the Princess Bride. Um, You read the Bible, you can figure out that's true. You don't want to get caught in a land war in Asia. Uh, you will lose. Uh, the Bible's not about warfare. When you go to war, kill everybody because that's what Israel did when they went to fight the Canaanites. Well, that's you're missing the point of the passage. The Bible's not about literature, though it has a bunch of types of literature. And it's a really fun study. I've actually taught this in, in a Sunday school something like 20 years ago where you move through the different types of literature in the Bible, whether it be... Historical literature, poetic literature, parabolic literature, uh, apocalyptic literature, and so forth. It has different types of literature. but That's not what the Bible is primarily about. And let me end with this. The Bible is not about diet plans. You could probably find a Christian bookstore selling you uh, Daniel's diet plan. That is not what the Bible is about. That's not what that passage is about. Um, The Bible is not instructing you on how to diet. So, the Bible is misused in all these ways, and this is not exhaustive. What does the Bible primarily teach? Well, again, what's the focus here? Two things. What man is to believe, this is about matters of faith, God's revealed doctrines, who He is, what He does. That's what the Bible is primarily about. Who is God and what does He do? And then, the Bible is about our obedience. How should we respond to who God is and what He does as Maker, Sustainer, and Savior? That's what the Bible is primarily about. Now, while all scriptural truths or facts are, are not of equal importance, and that's recognizing that statement, the Bible is principally teaching something, which necessarily means there are other things that it's not principally teaching, right? While all Scripture truths are not of equal importance, God's Word in its totality is to be received by faith. There's a recognition here. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe. So we're called to a posture of faith. We embrace everything God teaches by faith. Why should we embrace everything God teaches by faith. Because we know that God is the one speaking. Because we assent to His truth as the authority. He's the maker, and therefore we, the creature, listen to what He says. And then finally, we trust His declarations are right because of who He is. We come to His word knowing that God is not a deceiver. He's the truth teller. So we accept whatever He says. That's our approach. We embrace it by faith. This is important, brethren. You don't have to understand why God is telling you this is the way it is. When you say that I have to understand it first, this is actually a famous philosophical discussion. What comes first, my faith or my understanding? Should understanding then produce faith or should faith lead to understanding? It's the latter. Faith should produce understanding. What do I do if I don't understand what God is saying? I believe Him anyway and trust Him because I'm not God and I don't know everything. Man and his arrogance frequently fails at precisely this point. God needs to prove Himself to me or He's got to prove these principles to me because I'm really the one in charge. No, you submit to what God says because He's God and you are not. It would be helpful for us all to learn that simple lesson. You are not God. God is God, and you need to submit to what He says. From where does this faith to embrace what God says come? Well, faith is not inherent in man. Faith is a gift of God, Ephesians 2. And specifically, it's a product of the Holy Spirit working in the heart of man. God brings new birth by the power of the Spirit, And the Spirit brings to us the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. So faith is called for, but man in his blindness doesn't see unless he is born again. Jesus teaches this very plainly in John chapter 3. You can't see the things of the kingdom unless you're born again. Okay, so we're establishing that the Scriptures alone are our authority here. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God, and what duty God requires of man. Now, let's think about this. If Scripture alone is our authority, sola scriptura, let's flesh that out. What does it mean? It means that no point of faith or path of duty should be accepted on any other basis than the Word of God. No point of faith, no path of duty should be accepted on any other basis except from the Word of God. How do I know what to believe? God tells me what to believe. Period. Somebody else doesn't tell me what to believe. God tells me what to believe. If you want to show me that I'm supposed to believe what you're saying, you need to show me from Scripture. We believe in Scripture alone. You want to show me the stuff I'm supposed to do. Show me that the Bible demands this of me. In a direct commandment or uh, a good and necessary consequence. It's an implication. Show me from Scripture. Other faulty guides, we kind of talked about this last week, tradition is often looked to as some type of supreme teacher. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Mark 7, 9, and He said to them, He's talking to the scribes the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. This is when we were, they were demanding hand washing, not for hygienic purposes, but for ceremonial cleansing. And actually, that's only stipulated for the priests and not for everybody. They're misusing Scripture. And Jesus says, you guys have a pattern of putting your tradition over the Word of God. You're supplanting the Word of God with your tradition. So tradition is not supreme at all. Or Matthew 22, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Uh, I love this verse. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Wouldn't that be a great conversation starter? You were wrong because you don't know the Bible or the power of God. Well, you haven't taken it all to Scripture. You're not thinking about this clearly. And to say that to the Sadducees, who at least embraced something of a doctrine of Scripture, though it was defective, was quite a striking argument. You can talk to people who say they believe the Bible, but don't believe the Bible, they don't follow the Bible. Tradition is not our teacher, experience is no supreme. Teacher. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Yeah, go ahead. Do what seems right to you. Where's that going to lead you? To death. We can, we can really extrapolate. This is a bit of a tangent. I won't spend long on this. We can extrapolate out from here, kind of a foundational thing about how we worship this morning. We, we embrace a principle called the regulative principle, that God regulates how we worship. Why do we do that? Because if we follow the way that seems right to us, we worshiped how we think we should on the basis of what we all decide we want to do. Would we get it right? No, we would get it wrong 100% of the time. We always get it wrong. We need the Bible to tell us how to get it right. So the regulative principle, I mean, simply defined is we worship according to Scripture. And we don't do stuff unless Scripture says we should do it. Why, Why don't we do that? Because if we say, well, you know, we'll take these things from Scripture and then we'll add our own stuff. You're getting it wrong. You're following your experience or tradition. You can't mingle Scripture with tradition and experience. Scripture alone. That's the point of the declaration, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Some reformers, Martin Luther, are very inconsistent in the way that they apply scripture alone. Other reformers, Calvin, Knox, are very particular about applying this principle. And that's who we follow. We are particular. We're not particular for being particular sect. We're not trying to be fussy people. We're just trying to do what God requires us to do. And we want to follow the Bible and not our own ideas, not tradition. So here's the principle Scripture is the only rule of faith and life. Or you may have heard it, Scripture is the only rule of faith and practice. Uh, the way our Confession of Faith puts it is faith and life. A Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 2. The Bible is given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And we're talking about a rule. Uh, like uh, like a ruler uh, a direction a standard this is the way to go the bible alone is the rule of faith and life the bible itself teaches this principle second timothy 3 16 and 17 all scripture is breathed out by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness note the purpose clause that the man of god may be complete equipped for every good work. How am I to be, as a Christian, equipped for every good work that God would call me to do? Scripture equips me unto every good work. No other thing equips me under every good work. Scripture alone does this. So I want to know my Bible. I want to understand its doctrines and what I, what's required of me. Or Isaiah 8, uh, to the teaching, literally to the law and to the testimony. I don't want to listen to the voices of politicians saying stuff. I want to go to the Bible. That was the context of Isaiah chapter 8. I'm not going to listen to what these conspirators are saying over here. I'm going to go to what Scripture has to say. That's our biblical principle. So what are the implications of this idea? I'm only looking at a couple of them, but God's people got in trouble for not paying attention to what God said. Uh, Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Pretty serious thing. To perish from a lack of knowledge. We're talking about you don't know the Lord and what He requires. You don't embrace God from a principle of faith and then carry out your faith in doing what I tell you to do. So, if you don't get this, you die. And you don't just die. You die, die. Right? You perish. God's Word is the direction. Other implication. Proverbs 1. I won't read this whole section. Just mention a few phrases. The father in Proverbs is talking to his son, encouraging him in the way of obedience, and the way of embracing God's Word. And he tells him, if you receive My words and treasure up My commands within you, if you call out for insight, if you seek it, meaning understanding and My commandments, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. And note this phrase, this is a go to memorize For the Lord gives wisdom, and from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. If you're going to know God and know what God requires of you, where do you go? You go to the mouth of God. Where do you have the mouth of God? Record it for you in your Bible. So the implication here, clearly, is that we become people of the book. That's our sole focus. It's not bibliolatry. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us His Word. So we pay attention to what God has to say. Another way to say this in a simple fashion is Psalm 119, 105. Some of you probably know this verse. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. If I'm to have direction into how I'm to go, your word lights the way for me. Your word makes a, your, your word as a light makes a path, showing me how I should walk. Okay, moving on in the in the uh, statement here what do the scriptures principally teach the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning god and what duty god requires of man why believe before duty why does faith precede obedience that's a really important question and as we study this and there are a bunch of reasons number 1 faith is the foundation of duty uh, romans fourteen twenty three Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let that one sit with you for a while and think about its implications. Whatever I can't do from a posture of faith is sin. So every little decision that you have to make in your life about should I do this or should I not do this? If I can't do this in faith, it's sin to me. Uh, furthermore, as I think about it, whatever doesn't proceed from the the principles of faith, what God actually tells me of who He is and what He requires, I can't then do it. I don't just do stuff irrespective to my faith in God because I I live for God holistically. I want to bring every part of my being in in submission to the Lord. So I, I submit to Him and embrace what He says and then I do it. That's the idea. Again, I won't read all this. Romans 1, Paul is introducing the Gospel uh, here, the Gospel of God as it relates to the person of Christ in His human descent. He's a descendant of David, but He's also the, the Son of God with power having been raised from the dead. But ultimately, Paul goes on to say, in my apostleship, as I go out as an apostle, I aim to bring about the obedience of faith. I want you to think about the word of there. I aim to bring about, as I proclaim the Gospel, the obedience of faith. What's the relationship of the words obedience to faith? It's the obedience that faith produces. It's the obedience that flows from faith. This is how Paul's going to teach. I'm going to give you the doctrine, and then I'm going to tell you what you should do because of the doctrine. Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Doctrine, 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 doctrine. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. Duty, 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 duty. And it begins. The, the transition begins with a therefore. Therefore, in view of all this, do this. Romans works the same way. Romans 1 to 11, lots of doctrine. There's a few commands along the way. Lots of doctrine. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, in view of the mercies of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice. So that's the relationship. Uh, We should see the obedience that comes from faith. So faith is primary, and then what we do is responsive to what we believe. Why faith before duty? I'm already getting to this, but let me make it clear. This order distinguishes the order of things in the covenant of grace versus the covenant of works. Um, Initially, man was called to perfect obedience. And that command focused on don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did Adam do? He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell. And the covenant of works condemns Adam, but it condemns all from Adam. We're all condemned as lawbreakers. Right? God requires something of you and you didn't fulfill it. However, Christ is our obedience. We recognize as as believers, Christ is the, the second or the last Adam. He obeys in my stead. And what Jesus does is secure salvation for me. And now, as one in Christ, I'm called to gospel obedience. We engage in our duty as those who are born again. We're not earning our standing with God on the basis of what we do but we're responding to what God has done with faith and obedience to Him. So, without regeneration, we cannot please God. Without the new birth, we can't do what God has called us to do. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans chapter 8. It's quite striking the way he puts it. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. And note this, indeed it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot do what God has called you to do if you're in the flesh. What has to change? You have to be transitioned from the flesh to the Spirit. You have to be made alive through Christ the power of the Holy Spirit has to come upon you in new birth, that you would then give your obedience unto the Lord, that you would be enabled. Why faith before duty? Uh, One more round on this. Exodus 20, verse 2. Note how the Ten Commandments start. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We begin with the declaration of the Ten Commandments not with what you're supposed to do, but who God is and what He has done. Note what's said there. He is Yahweh. That's the Lord in all caps. He's the covenant God. Uh, He is our God. I am the Lord, your God. I've entered into relationship with you. You didn't enter into relationship with me. I sought you. I pursued you. I took hold of you. And I've done something for you. I've redeemed you on the basis of who God is, we now have something to do. Therefore, we are bound to keep all of His commandments. So He is the Lord, He is our God, and He saved us. Now live like this. This is one of the problems, by the way. Several problems with it. Might step on some toes of conservative-minded people. But you get in these arguments today about displaying the Ten Commandments in the courtroom, the courthouse, somewhere on the grounds of of the court. It's become a a, a contention point. But almost always, I I would dare say it's probably 100%, of what is displayed is what God says to do. Never with the context of here's what I have done, therefore do. Because it makes it sound like do these things, and God will accept you. Well, brethren, you're in the flesh by nature, and you cannot please God. And if you do those things, you're going to quickly discover you fail, and you will never meet the standard. You actually need the preface to the Ten Commandments. Here's what God has done. Believe in Him and then respond. It's also, you know, people who display the Ten Commandments really only believe in nine of them because they they get rid of the Sabbath. That's a conversation for another day. Uh, but that 's not okay. Uh, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, and it 's a perpetual thing and again, you can ask me about that later uh, because it 's going to come up later in the catechism, and we 'll talk about it. okay we 're kind of wrapping up here. Um, I want you to think about the implications of what we've just gone through in terms of helping us as we study the Bible. When we come to the Bible. And y- y'all probably been in various discussion groups or groups that are studying Bible together. There's a famous question that people ask when they're studying the Bible, whether it be, it, it be individually or corporately. Uh, and it's, it's not a good question. Um, what does this passage mean to does anybody know that? To me? What does this passage mean to me? How many of y'all just I, I really want you to show of hands. How many of y'all have heard this that way to approach scripture? Okay, I figured, I mean, I I did too. It's a bad question. Um, It's not the way you should approach Scripture. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach, let's start, what man is to believe concerning God. What's the first question that you should ask when you read your Bible? What does God reveal about His character? So we become God-centered in our focus. What does God reveal about Himself? About His attributes? What Trinitarian activities do I see in the passage that I'm studying? What what aspects of the work of Christ? What aspects of the the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit? Um, What doctrines is God revealing? Sorry about the lack of a question mark there. What doctrines is God revealing? So as as I look at this passage, what am I to believe about God directly, who He is, but what am I to understand about the works of God? Is this talking about God's justifying power, how He He credits me with the righteousness of Christ? Is this talking about God's work of sanctification, how He He sanctifies me? Is this talking about what God is going to do in glorification, how He's going to transition us from this realm of flesh and death, and we're going to be Raised up and totally conformed to Christ, and see Him as He is, and be raised incorruptible, immortal. What doctrines are being revealed here? What's God revealing about His plan? Where are we in the progress of redemption? Am I in the Old Testament and stuff going on there, where I'm looking forward to the Messiah? Am I in the New Testament where Messiah has come and I'm looking back to King Jesus being exalted? Um, where Where are we in the plan of God? What benefits? <clears throat> is God graciously bestowing in this passage? Um, How is He pouring out His grace unto me so that I recognize I have... There's a catechism question about this. What benefits do we receive? I'm summarizing it. Um, In addition to justification, adoption, and sanctification, there there are several benefits we receive. I probably haven't told you where this comes from, but sometimes I say this at the Lord's Supper. The benefits we receive from God are peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, assurance of God's love, increasing grace and perseverance to the end. Those are great benefits. That I can have peace with God. I can be assured that He loves me. I can have joy because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. I can know I'm going to go from grace to grace because He keeps me. In fact, He empowers my perseverance to the end. So what benefits is He saying, He performs. You remember when David says, Psalm 103, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. If you want to stir your heart to worship, you want to prime the pump so that you're ready to come into the presence of God to worship, you think on the benefits that God has given to you. John Owen says famously, and again, I've, I've said this to you before, but he talks about how Christians go around with a heaviness because they're not considering their privileges. We're not thinking about the benefits of God to our souls. And I mean, I'm guilty of this all the time. I just don't stop to consider the benefits of God and what it should produce in me. So ask yourself the question, who is God? What is He showing me about Himself? What is He doing here? Where where are we in the progress of redemption? How has He poured out benefits upon me? We're God centered, and then we ask the question: Having focused on God's person, God's acts, God's redemptive purposes, how should I respond to Him? Still not. What does the Bible mean to me? But how do I respond to who God is? Uh, In what way does this passage rebuke me? It's a great way to start. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for, the next one, reproof, for rebuke. God's Word tells you no. Don't do it like that. Uh, In what way does this passage correct me? Not only telling me no or stop, but now go this way. That's really helpful. Are there duties here to which I've been blind? That's a great question to ask. Have I been missing something? in the way that I live as a Christian. Like, I'm totally blind to this. You ever had that experience when you're reading the Bible or you're hearing a sermon? I never even thought about that, that that was required of me. Um, You ever, one of these that jumped out to me when I was a young Christian, in Psalm 19, David prays that God would cleanse him for his hidden faults. You ever thought about asking God to forgive you for the sins you don't even know that you're doing? There are whole groups of people who claim the name of Christ who are very concerned to confess everything. But here's the problem with that. You don't even know everything you do that's wrong. You don't even know all the ways you've violated God's Word. How could you possibly confess all your sins? You must have a really low view of sin and a really high view of your understanding. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. So am I blind to something? What obvious duties are exhorted here, which I need empowerment to carry out. Some things are really plain. You know? Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That that's really plain. Can I do that? No. So I need the power of the Holy Spirit. So it, it not only tells me what to do, it helps me recognize my dependence upon the Lord to do it. And if I go back to who God is, God is the God who willingly empowers the servants. So, those are good questions to ask. And we end, what do the Scriptures principally teach? Say it with me one more time. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. I hope this will be helpful to you. I've used this as a framework for studying my Bible as long as I've known about this question because it's so helpful. Uh, maybe it'll help you as you read your Bible to read it better. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is a light to our steps, that Your Word is life, that Your Word is bread to feed us. And we pray that even today we would feast upon Your Word, knowing who You are and knowing what You require of us. We praise You for Your kindness in revealing Yourself and directing us. And we praise You for new birth through the power of the Holy Spirit as we are raised up in Christ. And we praise You in Christ's name. Amen.